welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, cats, the expanse, and much more. I'm Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'll be speaking with Eve Ekman. I first met Eve Ekman at a meditation-centered dinner, and I was struck by the fact that I had seen her face someplace before. It was one of those things I just couldn't figure out, and I was racking my brain to try to figure out where I had seen her. And finally it came to me. A much younger version of herself was the face used to model dozens of human emotions in photographs in the book Emotions Revealed by Paul Ekman. Later, I also began working with Eve at a local San Francisco startup called Wisdom Labs. And I came to realize that she is not only a highly trained emotions researcher herself, but also a gifted and seasoned teacher and practitioner of meditation. So now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Emotions, Stress, and Heartbreak with Eve Ekman. Eve, welcome to Deconstructing Yourself. What a pleasure to be here, Michael. The podcast for modern mutants, interested in all kinds of stuff. And if there's anyone that I classify as a modern mutant, it is Eve Ekman. So I'm glad to have you on the show. I take that as a compliment. It is meant as a compliment. So you are San Francisco born and bred, correct? Correct. And you're like East Bay, Punk Rock, Gilman Street. Yes, that is one of my lineages. Surfer. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So what brought you from, you know, Green Day or whatever (laughs) over at Gilman Street and Jesse Luscious and all that to meditation and specifically making a deep dive into emotions? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Because of the center where we both teach against the stream, I'm luckily not the only person who made that leap from kind of a general fuck you to a I'm going to embrace insight and inquiry. A more specific fuck you. Yeah, more specific fuck you. I mean, I think with Gilman and especially the era that I was there, so like 94 to 98, there was... Did I name the right band for the era of Gilman? So Green Day already felt like they were kind of the old guys. Oh, okay. So when I was there, it was more like Black Fork and El Dopa. Okay. We had the very tail end of Jawbreaker. Wow. Bikini Kill at the drive-in, the criminals. You still listening to all that? Oh, yeah. Nightly. It's like a lullaby. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They're kind of incredibly unlistenable. Yeah. Almost all of it. Hey, I still listen to the Crucifix. Wow. Yeah. And I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I should revisit. You know, when I think about that question, though, what really comes to mind for me is what drew me to that scene was simply not buying into what was on offer. So what was on offer was do well, succeed, and then buy stuff, get married. None of that looked super appealing. Get a perm. (laughs) It was pretty clear that that wasn't really working for people I could see around me. And in punk rock, there was just such a general sense that community was more important than any other thing possible. We didn't really have a whole lot to buy that was useful. And going to shows was pretty much free or inexpensive. So there's a real emphasis on community and togetherness. And that was really healing for someone like myself. 
Yeah, and that whole focus on do-it-yourself, mm-hmm. which isn't there so much anymore, but <laughs> way back when there wasn't punk stuff to buy except right. for maybe records and patches for your code or whatever. And But the rest of everything you just made yeah. yourself. Like yes. I made endless zines and posters and artwork, and everybody was making everything. Yeah. And it was all about not buying stuff from corporations, right? Right. Yeah. Which is, in fact, quite Buddhist, right? Yeah. So we don't need stuff from the outside. Though, indeed, with punk, we were making and generating a lot more external stuff. There still was kind of an opposition to hanging our hat on any redemption we might get from external rewards and means. So, again, you're saying that it was a kind of a general disaffection with current Western culture that was present in the punk rock scene that was also a gateway into the Buddhist world for you. Yeah, but you know, I'm not a seeker. A lot of people found Mm. their way to Buddhism when they were looking for it. I got thrown in. How did you get thrown in? It's my karma dharma, as some say. Well, it's interesting. I first got interested in general with Buddhism just through the Dalai Lama as a figurehead as such an interesting, non-violent leader, one who was really promoting the same ideals that I looked up to in Martin Luther King and Gandhi. And I had the opportunity to meet him when I was 14, doing some activism for Free Tibet. Activism was my first real passion. Hmm. And so social justice was one way I felt like it was okay to be alive in this world, yeah. not just kind of icky. And so I met him, where, was really where, impressed. Where did you meet him? In Boulder, Colorado. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, that was like a school, or not really school, but trip of young activists who went out there to meet him. It was cool. It was not especially meaningful for me in that I probably held his hand for a second, which anyone who's held his hand knows that's a lot. It's a good feeling. There's a a great deal of warmth and goodness that he emanates. But it wasn't as though I was taken to this idea, wow, this is my spiritual leader. I now have a path. Yeah. It just happened that when my dad got invited to a meeting where he would be present about five years later, he agreed to go because he thought his daughter would get a kick out of it. Oh, so you have a dad? I have a dad. Yeah. He's pretty well known. He's kind of a big deal. He's kind of a big deal. So he got you access to the Dalai Lama in later. Yeah. This was from now 95 to 2000. And in that meeting, kind of the groundwork that would later have me fall into these practices was set up. So describe that. That's very interesting. Yeah. So this meeting was called Destructive Emotions. There was a lot of neuroscientists and scholars, folks who really wanted to come together and unpack from this Eastern point of view and Western point of view. What is This was part of Mind and Life? Mind and Life. Yeah. And this is when Mind and Life had conferences that weren't open for the public. Yeah. This was just dialogues. So Richie Davidson was there, Daniel Goleman, Matthew Ricard, Francisco Varela. The usual the, suspects. You know, the cool guys. <laughs> and they invited my dad, who was very reluctant and thought it would most likely be everyone listening to and thinking about this person as though they were a cult leader. He thought it was bullshit, right? Majorly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was like, I didn't fall for Est. I didn't fall for Synanon. You are not going to find me worshiping this leader from the East. <laughs> <laughs> but he thought it'd be fun to drag you along. And- well, yeah, if, he was like, if my daughter can come, she'll enjoy it. Dharmsala India, why not? So that was his real interest in going to the meeting. And wow, talk about a complete change around. He really had an enormous 
resonance to the presence of the Dalai Lama that he's talked about at, at great length. Yeah. So your dad liked it, and, and you mm-hmm. did too, right? Yeah, I had a great time. It wasn't as though I was shifted. I was already enjoying the presence of His Holiness and loving the idea of this dialogue. I actually got to ask one question to him then, which I think I'm only beginning to understand in the last couple months. What was your question? <laughs> My question was, how come we have the hardest time feeling compassion to the people that we're closest with? Yeah, interesting. And so what's coming up recently that is allowing you to feel like maybe you're getting a new insight into the answer to that? Yeah. So His Holiness's responses was first, which is his classic response, what do I know? I'm just a monk. And then his second response was, especially in romantic partnership, every day you have to remember something about this person that is unideal. Interesting. Essentially, see their clay feet. So you're you're popping the bubble of projection around the relationship archetype, and yes, see, you got that immediately. For me, I was like, why do I want to think about the bad parts about this person? Isn't that what gets in the way of my compassion for them as it is? Well, he wanted you to see their clay feet, and were you just puzzled at that point? Yeah, I mean, I kind of understood, but. I was also confused because there's this idea that I always held pretty close from John Hughes movies that my significant other was going to be everything. They were going to be, in some ways, this ideal version. And for them to be that way, I had to kind of co-create that mystery. Right. Help them to be ideal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's just instantly lands with me as like an ultra destructive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I definitely know rationally it's not right. And yet watching the recent separation I've had with my partner, I've seen that I indeed was living in an ideal version of our relationship and not the reality. So you have recently gone through a rather deep heartbreak. Correct. It's not through. I'm in. In. (laughs) In the big middle Mm -hmm. of deep heartbreak. Mm -hmm. And so what's coming up for you around that teaching? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm really fortunate to have a teacher now named Jennifer Wellwood, who's a just incredible Dakini and has a lot of great teachings on what she calls psycho-spirituality. And one of her teachings is on yielding to whatever our experience is. And that is really been helping me. It's not quite related to this idea of bringing down to reality the projected image of your other. However, it does give me a way to understand moment-to-moment experience. Is this teaching of yielding significantly different than equanimity? Depends on whose definition of equanimity. Let's go there. (laughs) So on this podcast, I've heard actually two different definitions of equanimity. Minimally, yeah. At least. I'd be very curious what you thought on this. I think with yielding, it might be the more microscopic level of what's needed for equanimity. Equanimity might be the overarching experience. And you mean microscopic in space or time or? Time. Time. So like just in this very moment. Yes. Yeah. So emotions, right, are triggered in a 25th of a second, don't last more than a minute. So our equanimity with them is really a very fine-grained experience and one in which if we can yield to them instead of oppose them, get in the way, change or shift them, we probably will find ourselves closer to equanimity. 
Yeah, so this thing about emotions I find ultra fascinating. I think you may have heard me and uh, Rick Hansen talking about it and other teachers. And that is the balance between wanting to accept whatever's arising emotionally and to shift or change whatever's arising emotionally. And, you know, there's seemingly, I'll just say not contradictory, but different teachings and many different practices on how to work with that. Sometimes you're yielding and accepting, and sometimes you're doing metta and completely, Mm -hmm. utterly changing how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And on top of it, you know, it's funny, you went to that conference about destructive emotions, like there's some that are bad and we're supposed to get rid of them somehow. And your specialty is emotions. You're maybe the most informed person on emotions in the entire world right now, as far as I can tell. So what, wow. yeah, well, that's, <laughs> it's true. What do you have to say about that? Are we changing them? Are we accepting them? Is it both and? I mean, what's your take? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. And A lot of it actually has to do with that temporality still. So when we say destructive emotions, it's not that some emotions are good or bad, positive or negative. It's actually the enactments are sometimes constructive or destructive. You mean the actions we take based on the emotions? Yeah, and I say enactment because that includes rumination or some form of suppression. So it's not necessarily just that you're punching your cat or whatever. Right. Or eating three pints of Ben and Jerry's or coconut bliss or whatever is your... Yeah. Please don't punch your cat. But but it can also be just internally destructive action. Absolutely. And so quickly, it's almost outside of our conscious awareness. So I think one of the other ways that we get stuck, especially with Buddhist psychological and Western psychological points of views is just semantic. So a lot of the Buddhist teachings that I've read on emotion are really about the habits of mind. And this has to do with the common ways we respond, irrespective of triggers. And then we talk about it from the Western psychological point of view. We're talking about milliseconds Mm -hmm. and our immediate actions and responses, the physiology in our body. And we're not looking so much at these habits. We're looking at these discrete events. And so what can we learn about the habits of mind? from the teachings. Wow. (laughs) There's so much to learn. And one thing I've realized is heartbreak might be the best opportunity to learn about your destructive emotional habits. Nice. Well, tell us about it from within the center of the cyclone. Yeah. So there's just these different layers. So I've been today kind of reflecting, hopefully not ruminating on suffering and the suffering of suffering, Mm. the suffering of change and the suffering of conditioning. And each one of those we can hit on through the emotions we experience in heartbreak. People think of heartbreak as just sad, but just like loss, it actually has many different emotions within it, including experiences of frustration, disgust, contempt, profound fear. Disorientation. Disorientation, which we would call more of a cognitive state from the Western psychological point of view. Mm. But yeah, I've definitely been feeling as though someone spun me around many times as though I was going to pin the tail on a donkey. And then I'm just standing there and the world is still (laughs) moving around me rapidly. They remove the blindfold and there's no donkey. Yeah, Yeah. right. Or I'm the donkey. It's unclear. (laughs) Yeah. 
But in a general way, the way I understand it is we want to look at the moment by moment arising of these emotional experiences, which in my way of working is always in the body. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to talk to you about that also. But, you know, uh, carefully, mindfully contacting the moment by moment, like micro arisings in each part of the body where the emotion is felt and then doing both kind of a curious examination of the phenomenology of that emotional arising and while also carefully accepting it completely or yielding to it, as you're saying. Mm-hmm. Would that be a fair description of how you work with emotion? Both the embodiment and the yielding are key components. And again, I'm going to redundantly come back to this temporal idea. I think we can do so with our perceptions, So that which influences the very way we become triggered, as well as our responses. So there are certain habits and patterns we can identify in what we become triggered about, and then how we respond to those triggers. So that, to me, would be more of a cognitive component, right? Where it's like watching and, in a way, analyzing what triggers you. And that's like a post hoc. Mm -hmm. And then ideally, it starts to shift and change enough that we don't become triggered by the same things and potentially we don't respond in the same ways. And so do you think it's enough to simply post hoc notice, I got triggered by that, okay, I'm contacting and yielding, I'm contacting and yielding, and you see it a hundred times, is that enough to change that behavior or that reaction or is there more required? Yeah, so that piece of embodiment and recognizing our felt experience, that is more likely to give us some immediate relief from the consequences of our destructive behaviors. It's slowing us down enough so we aren't necessarily immediately following up with a habitual pattern. You know, I think that there's many doors to the same room when it comes to emotion. And for some folks, especially if they have really kind of well-tread pathways of behaviors that get them into a lot of trouble, they may need some more forceful interventions. And some of us yielding might be enough. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of us get a little wrapped up in the yielding, right? right? And there's a need for action. Emotions have important messages for us. So we can end up becoming what Pema Chodron describes as like idiot compassion, right? If we are just yielding and yielding and yielding, then we may not be protecting ourselves or moving out of harm. Yeah. If, for example, your relationship partner is abusing you over and over and it's making you angry, just accepting anger might not be enough of a response. Yeah. More may be required. Absolutely. Yeah. And so what else? Are you saying that if we are noticing it in this very moment by moment, short term way and we're yielding and we're observing what's triggering us. Is that enough to begin to really change behavior or what more do we need? Yeah, I think specificity is really important here. And so there's this term that's called emotion granularity. And what it describes is our ability to specifically note what emotion we're feeling. So I had the great opportunity to work on this atlas of emotion with my dad. Mm -hmm. And we created a whole language for describing your felt emotion experience. doesn't tell you what to do. doesn't tell you why it happened or what you're going to necessarily do as a response, but it gives you those words. And part of that is because our semantic understanding of emotion is really useful. Mm 
Mm-hmm. It's a way that we kind of make meaning and understand ourselves. What we're looking for with what you described as our kind of more cognitive or processes that happen afterward, ideally that's in the service of insight. Not just making lists and noticing, but having some insight that then when we're experiencing the emotion about to have a regrettable episode, there's a kind of direct experience of, oh, this is that thing I do yeah, right here and now. This is no longer just a narrative I have about my experience. This is applied. And that's the moment that I hear people really commonly describing when they have that experience, especially the first time they're like, it's like there was a gap. Mm. It's like there was a space right between like whatever triggered them and the time when they would normally just lash out or do whatever reactive behavior. And instead, all of a sudden there's this weird pause, Mm -hmm. right? There's this weird opening and then they recognize that they're about to have the emotion and they might even still completely have it. (laughs) Probably do, right? It still arises. But in that moment, there's enough time to recognize it and also make like a decision how to respond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's either Alan Wallace or Matthew Ricard, neither one of them, they each say it's the other. They describe that gap as the spark before the flame. And you've done so much scientific research on this. What is the nature of that gap? Is it actually that more time is elapsing or have we somehow sped up our cognition of that moment so that we're just parsing it more finely? Yeah, it's really interesting. Well, you know, we're essentially not designed to be consciously aware of our emotions. We're designed in the opposite. So when we're engineering or reverse engineering our ability to notice these emotions as they arise, it's very effortful. Yeah. And that effort is indeed developing these skills that you've talked about on this show before of meta-awareness or metacognitive awareness. And you are able in some ways to recognize this enormous amygdala expression and not completely fuse with how it filters and narrows our vision of what's going on in the world. So you're getting a little bit of perspective. I like that you're using the phrase reverse engineering. It seems like emotions are meant to be kind of plug and play out of the box. Mm -hmm. They're just in there. They're going to react how they react. And the whole idea is at least you know, 50,000 years ago, those reactions would have been, on average, the correct reaction. Right. Right. So it's just uh, follow your feelings and you'll be fine Mm -hmm. 50,000 years ago. But now they're so often maladapted or inappropriate for our environment and they don't actually give us correct feedback for the world we're living in. I think it's really interesting that all these spiritual or religious or contemplative practices of working with emotions arose just a couple thousand years ago Hmm. when people started moving into cities, right? And living surrounded by an environment that was so different than the savanna that we're, you know, adapted for or whatever. And suddenly it's like, oh, we need all these ways to work with our feelings Hmm. that we didn't need before. Yeah. Presumably. I mean, maybe this is just a fantasy of the noble savage or whatever, but... (laughs) What do you think about that characterization? Yeah, no, absolutely. There's three things that come to mind immediately. One is what is the role of close others in regulating our emotional experience? And the other is how easily we can forget the impermanence of our emotional experience when we feel emotional. 
Yeah. So we just completely lose track of the fact that this will pass and there's nothing around it. And then the third, this idea again of our cities, though ostensibly we're around more people, there's this fractured feeling and this experience of isolation that can occur with our emotions as though we were the only ones yeah. and no one else could possibly understand. And maybe if they knew or found out, they would think we were terrible people. Well, especially in my case, they would, be, <laughs> they would know that was true. Yeah. So it's funny that we evolved under the situation of maybe being around 25 or 50 people mm-hmm. our whole lives. Mm-hmm. And maybe some points in life around maybe a couple hundred extended family members or whatever. Mm -hmm. But anyone beyond that would have been a dangerous Mm -hmm. stranger. Yeah. And so being in these cities uh, surrounded by so many people who we don't know and don't have a particular read on and to whom our biology has a profound fear reaction Mm. is already kind of throwing off our whole emotional regulator, at least the one that biology gave us. I'm just thinking of our ability to isolate. So some of my dad's foundational research was in a culture in Papua New Guinea, where folks lived most likely as all of our ancestors lived. And in this case, they had, you know, I think 20 or 30 huts. None of them had a door. Wow. People maybe did a trip of a couple miles once a year. Foreigners and anyone from the outside was so rare. And your experiences, whether joyful or fearful or sad, were witnessed collectively. You were never allowed to be alone in your sadness or fear. Yeah, it was part of the group gestalt, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think some of our more destructive emotional responses are actually prolonged ruminations. Of course, as you mentioned before, you know, hitting the wall or hitting another person or God forbid your treasured cat. Not the cat. Then, you know, that can happen. We can have an immediate explosive emotional response. But my guess is the majority of people, the great proportion of their emotions that are difficult and disturbing (laughs) are completely internal in their ruminations. So they're not being shared with a greater community. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, they have the opportunity to be more dysregulated. Yeah. Yeah. And even with our close, intimate others, of course, right? Many of us live with other people or beings. There can be such a specific nature of that relationship. So many expectations, so many roles. Whereas being mirrored by, you know, an intimate group, we can see so many different variations of, oh, that's how that person is experiencing fear. Oh, and they also had sadness and loss. So there's a bit more data points for us to feel that kind of confidence that I'm not alone in this. This isn't just me. It's so interesting to me, the thing you were mentioning about, you didn't use this word, but I think of it as the inevitability of emotional reaction where an emotion arises. And even though cognitively on some level, we're aware that that's going to pass very quickly, it doesn't feel from within inside it, when we're fused with it, it does not feel like it's going to pass quickly. Mm-hmm. It feels tremendously salient. It's mm-hmm. like the most important thing <laughs> in the world. And it's either incredibly comfortable or incredibly mm-hmm. uncomfortable. And w- there's that urgency that we must do something mm. about it. Yeah. And again, for me, I come back to it, emotional expressions in the mm. body. So how do we feel it? And 
one of the biggest things that I learned about this from Shinzen, actually, he really was good about showing me this many years ago, and that was that when you contact an emotional sensation in the body over and over and over again, and it begins to lose some of that urgency, mm. and it also you decontextualize it from its cognitive content. Mm-hmm. So there's all the things you're thinking about the emotion, but then there's just the raw feeling mm. or feelings in your body. What's so interesting and just blew my mind the first time I noticed it was that they are extremely easy to bear. Mm. Let's say it's a difficult emotion, and we'd say in this way of talking about it that it's kind of physically unpleasant or Mm -hmm. even painful. But when you compare that pain or that unpleasantness of that emotional sensation to like, you know, slamming your finger in a drawer, it's not even close. I mean, it's like maybe like it hurts as much as even a really bad emotion hurts as much as maybe sunburn. Mm, Right. Yeah. Right. When you're talking about just the actual discomfort level. And so the thing that makes them so uncomfortable is you feel like it's going to last forever and that you have to do something Mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. It's so fascinating by themselves as just a physical experience with like, again, deconstructed from or decoupled from the cognitive content, even if it's still there. They're kind of tame. Yeah. You know, Again, speaking from my most recent first-person embedded ethnography of heartbreak, (laughs) I've been struggling uh, deeply with fear, which Mm. is no surprise. Whenever I go on retreat, that's what I meet. If I'm journaling long enough, there it is again. So it's not exactly a surprise that this emotion arises. It's not unique to this trigger, right? Fear is more of a habit for me, a more stance or worldview. And when I was experiencing fear recently, it's interesting you said sunburn. It felt both hot and cold at the same time. Mm -hmm. And like I was being dragged away by a sneaker wave. Because there I was, meditating in bed, trying to relax into my body. And fear just ripped over me and pulled me under, dragged me beneath. (laughs) And I was was riding it. I was just like, okay, here it is. And just incredible how strong and unpleasant the sensations were and how hard it was to close the door and keep it closed against those cognitions that would make it keep coming. Right. Like, when are you ever going to find another person? Sure, and this never. was the person. Of and, course. The only one. Right. And now you are somehow unsafe and unprotected and anything can happen. It's really interesting. And indeed, you can work with that energy and hold that door shut. But it takes a lot of effort and skill. Yeah. And just clarity, Mm -hmm. right? Like, okay, that's mental talk again. Mm -hmm. And that's a mental image. And those are not the body sensation. And just for me, the image is rather than keeping the door shut, it's more just kind of like, when you listen to a band and you can hear the drums versus Mm -hmm. the bass versus the guitar and you're just like, I'm only going to notice the drums right now. The rest of it's happening, but I'm noticing the different channels or the different musical instruments independently. So it's like, okay, well the, the guitar is doing whatever it's doing, but I'm feeling the bass right now. And it's surprisingly effective. Mm. Right. Mm. And yet it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Yeah. And then, you know, I have a question for you, because I think I get a lot of folks asking me when I'm teaching about how do you know the difference between suppression 
and some sort of healthy application of either shamatha or vipassana or four measurables. You mean, how do you know not punching the cat is not suppression? Right. Essentially, I think that some of the benefits of meditation practices, and each one has a different flavor of how it can help us work with emotions, but they can also, of course, encourage us to bypass entirely our difficult emotional experiences. And I think we see the consequences of that across the board. Yes. And it's a particularly pernicious and egregious thing in the spiritual world, right? Yeah. Where we just have zillions of people who are deciding that they're only going to have good feelings or <laughs> they don't, you know, those emotions aren't theirs or whatever. Mm-hmm. And with all the consequent mayhem that occurs because of it. Yeah, I think it's simple, actually. And that is, it's why I'm a little allergic or maybe majorly allergic to the whole idea that we're going to change our feelings or that there's some emotions that are bad and that we shouldn't have. And maybe I lean too far in the other direction, but it's like, no, whatever is arising, you're going to learn to feel it in the way I was just describing at that, you know, micro level of the rising and passing body sensation. Mm. And you'll feel it concomitant with all these cognitions, but you'll keep noticing that they're different than the cognitions and that they're decoupled from the cognitions. And then the final move is really, really getting into the impermanence aspect Mm. and not even the medium term impermanence of like that it's here one minute and then go on the next minute, but the micro impermanence of little mm-hmm. moment by moment arisings and passings and arisings and passings and arisings and passings mm. in even a momentary emotion. It has mm. a whole bunch of little comings and goings. And it would take the cognitions to keep that going. It's the cognitions that make the emotions seem more solid and mm-hmm. real and continuous and urgent than it is, right? So when, again, the cognitions are still there, you're still having the thoughts, but they're decoupled from the emotional sensation with Vipassana clarity. And then you're watching the moment by moment arising and passing and with real emphasis on the impermanence of the arising and passing in the physical sensation. There's no need at all to suppress that emotion. Mm. It just keeps coming up and disappearing and coming up and disappearing and coming up and disappearing so much that it actually feels completely expressed and it all happens in that gap. And it's Mm. weird because you have this experience like of a gigantic emotion sometimes Mm. arising like that. And there's just like, it's like, uh, I'll compare it to, I'm not a good surfer, but I love body (laughs) surfing. And I love like when you're in a very large wave, like, 10 feet or more and you have that thing where it just grabs you and tumbles you head Mm. over heels Mm. over and over and over Mm. it can feel like that surrendering to one of these big emotion waves but if you keep relaxing and keep relaxing and letting it arise and pass moment by moment by moment by moment it will just completely internally express and be gone Mm. It's like if you encounter that with enough lack of stickiness, right? Mm. You're not clinging in any way. You're letting it do its thing. And and you're not allowing the cognitions to sort of slow it down Mm. or sludge it up or make it concrete and real. There's this real sense that the emotion not only got it completely expressed, it did Mm. exactly what it needed to do, but that it passed and left no trace. Mm -hmm. There's just like perfect cleanness afterwards. It's a very interesting sensation. Yeah. 
So beautifully described. I think it's so counterintuitive for people. It's almost like for new meditators, the first time they don't succumb to scratching the itch. Right. And they just watch and recognize that an unscratched itch eventually dissipates. Or kind of scratches itself, right? right. It just feels done now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so with that way of working that we're talking about, you asked about whether it's suppression or mm-hmm. denial or spiritual bypassing. There's no suppression in that, mm-hmm. right? What I just described. In fact, it's a kind of radical freedom mm-hmm. of expression. Mm-hmm. And it has this feeling, to use some woo-type language here, it has a feeling of just like the energy did what the energy needed to do. Sure. And now instead of being like tight and suppressed and controlled internally, there's a real freedom there, a real looseness. And it's like, okay, there's another big emotion wave. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Yeah. Let it crash, you know, on the internal beach or whatever. That's great. And I think for me, that's something that after a while you can really see in others and in oneself is, are you like tight and controlled with emotion or are the waves just freely breaking in there? Mm -hmm. Because there's a real difference in the kind of uh, aliveness Mm -hmm. that is present. I really notice when it feels like someone is real locked down Mm -hmm. and there are bad emotions that aren't allowed to happen and so on. Right. And from the outside, you can't tell if a practitioner or everyday person trying to practice mindfulness in a secular way is truly yielding or experiencing and, and moving through emotions or suppressing. Like we can't tell from the outside. And When you were speaking, one thing that came up for me is a lot of people are not motivated to completely open up to their emotions, right? (laughs) They're like, maybe in the next life. (laughs) To say say the least. And and one way that I often really try to encourage people to get into this emotional experience deeply, that the only way out potentially is in, is when we are kind of holding the door back, as I said, or attempting to not experience what's happening most likely that will lead to the overwhelm that creates stress. So people often talk about stress as though it were some kind of amorphous cloud or noxious gas that comes upon us. But in fact, stress is the over arousal of our emotion. That's the scientific definition, meaning our emotion is felt at a level we can't tolerate. Mm. Physiologically, it's distinct from unexperienced emotion. And as you were speaking, I was wondering, I wonder if part of that is not allowing it, not yielding, that the distress and overwhelm is created by the forcing back. Not always, but sometimes that that could be one of the, especially with ruminative stress, right? Not the stress of the saber-toothed tiger actually in your camp eating all your food. I hate when that happens. (laughs) It's the worst. (laughs) But the, you know, imagined saber-toothed tiger, which is for most of us, all of our stress is, you know, prospective into Mm. the future. And yet we aren't maybe giving in all the way. And for most people that giving in, they're like, you're telling me I should have a panic attack? Just let in all that fear. And so there's such an interesting subtlety that unfortunately you could probably only investigate by getting so close that indeed you might feel at the precipice of panic. Yeah. Can I do this? Is it possible for me to host this feeling at a very deep level? Yeah, I almost feel like I hope it is 
over the precipice of panic, you know, uh, for some people, uh, just in a safe, meditative place, like let right. the wave crash, right? Yeah. Let it tumble you. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, what I've learned, however, doing this a lot with folks is that there can be a trauma history that makes that way of working not ideal at yeah. first. Yeah. What have you seen there? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Trauma in general is such a distinct way that we see our database come up. And so when I say database, I'm not trying to make the human mind a machine, and yet we resonate to metaphors. So this database, what I'm describing is these past histories and scripts. So what triggers us to emotion, a lot of those are shared and universal. Any of us, if a object was fast moving towards our face, we would flinch, we would move backwards in fear. But for some of us, we experience fear with clowns, right? <laughs> and that could be exposure to early childhood movies or a older brother who was trying to terrify you or something like this. So we have our unique triggers as well as our triggers that are universal. And with trauma, we end up including in our database and our scripts these really significant events that trigger us so profoundly. And our scripts and triggers in this database is invisible to us, right? It is almost as though it were a lens we were seeing through the world and we didn't realize the lens was there at all. It's what's called our appraisal, our Mm -hmm. automatic appraisal. Mm -hmm. And so I think with an unexamined database, investigating deeply into our most profound triggers can be overwhelming. It really can be. And, you know, I think what you're describing is the embodied approach. It really is a better way to titrate. Mm -hmm. So though a lot of people who have experienced, especially early trauma, can't access sensations of emotion in their body at first, slowly over time, they can become more familiar. Yes. And that is a method that's, I think, safer than going into these traumatic memories, which can precipitate just so much spinning cognitively that they don't even know where the life raft is. They don't know where the way out is. So you have to develop the kind of anchor or the base in the body before telling people to go into that spin cycle of what could be some pretty intense thoughts and ideas and images, which are not real, but feel very much so. So this idea of what you're calling the embodied approach, part of it is just how we decide to define emotions, which I think are currently not completely defined, right? The definition from the Western psychological point of view is that it is a dynamic process that includes both physiological and psychological changes. Yeah. And based on what some call the wisdom of the ages or our kind of ancestral history and our unique personal past. So it would include the body sensations of the emotion and the cognitions around the emotion, according to this, the psychological definition. So it's funny. This is a turf war between, you know, all of psychology. We have these really well-defined fiefdoms of cognition, personality and social and emotion And there's a bit of disagreement on what part of emotions are thinking and what part of emotions are feeling and how distinct they are. Indeed, there are emotion-laden cognitions. Mm -hmm. So we have an emotion episode, such as your partner moves out and leaves, right? This happens. Just theoretically. Just theoretically. And there you are in your house with your cats. And, and saber-toothed tigers all around. <laughs> and there's a way in which 
the emotion, the loss can generate a lot of thoughts and ideas. And they're kind of coming from the emotion itself. Yeah, so the feelings trigger cognitions. Mm -hmm. And I could also think, I'm going to be alone forever. And that could have its own cascade of emotion feelings. Yeah, to me, this is so fascinating. Again, being trained in separating those two things, Mm. one of the really powerful skills that that makes possible is that you can then watch what you're describing. Like, Mm. okay, now there's a embodied emotional Mm. sensation that is triggering all this cognitive material Mm. and you can just feel it, see it, witness it happening. And Mm. then it starts going the other way. Okay. Here's this new arising Mm. of thinking and that's triggering all these body sensations And it just goes back and forth and back and forth. And that's what most of us call being me. (laughs) You know, being here is just having some feelings and I'm thinking about that, that I'm thinking some stuff and having some feelings. In terms of the turf war, I mean, and we're talking about the psychological turf war and Mm -hmm. then there's the whole meditation one about it too. But where, where do you land with all this? Yeah, well, I hopefully am not landing anywhere, but continuing to evolve. (laughs) In this current moment. In this current moment. Well, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking that there's such a beautiful overlap between Western psychology and Eastern psychology, where there's an interest in first-person inquiry, real first-person reflection. What is my experience like? And as you're describing the methods you use, which are this fine-grained approach to sensation, moment by moment, millimoment by millimoment. Nano sensations. Nano sensations. Yeah. Yeah, And I think, of course, that's what a lot of Western psychological research would like to do, but they're using fMRIs and Mm -hmm. EEG. Mm -hmm. What is this moment by moment changes and alterations in our physiology and our brainwaves and our thinking and emotions? And You know, I think I land on the place that our emotions are this dynamic combination of our felt experience, meaning sad, disappointed, frustrated, as well as the thoughts that are then generated Mm -hmm. by them. And both are hosted in the body. Mm -hmm. And when you say both are hosted in the body, you mean, for example, the meat of your brain is in your head. And so the thoughts are hosted in the body. Or do you mean it in a different way than that? Yeah funny. I was like, well, we're not going to go into consciousness. And I was like, oh, we might. Um, (laughs) So I have all these allegiances to different teachers who don't agree, which is just wonderful. It's like Uh, being pulled apart. That's the best possible situation. Gosh. And so on the one side, I have my dear teacher, Alan Wallace, who taught me just such exquisite techniques of meditation. I ended up teaching alongside him in my dad's place. I had no business to do so. And it was just such an awesome throw into the deep end, both Mm. of meditation practice being exposed to him and teaching people how to work with their emotions right there. And Alan has a point of view that, you know, this meat, this brain, we have no idea if thoughts or cognitions or consciousness is there whatsoever. Yeah, I saw Stan Groff today saying that there's zero proof that consciousness is generated in the brain. And I'm like, I love you, Stan Groff. I mean, I think that's probably wrong, but but still. I would, I, I would, ask, I would ask your local cognitive scientists, because that, if pressed, that's not too far. Yeah. Not to say there's nothing interesting and worthwhile in the brain. There is so much interesting and worthwhile in the brain. One of the most worthwhile things... I find is it gives people some sense of self-understanding 
And I, in some ways, begrudge that. I wish people would find self-understanding just by noticing sensation in the body. Yes. Just by watching patterns of emotion and, you know, deeply diving into their narratives and their histories. But indeed, people see themselves reflected in their neuroanatomy. It helps them understand their experience. It feels deshaming in some ways of, well, my amygdala hijacked my prefrontal cortex. <laughs> Now I know why I punched my cat. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And we've been trying to figure out why you did that. Mm-hmm. But you were going to contrast the Alan Wallace view with another view, I believe. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and it was just kind of woven in there in this idea that we can understand the entirety of our consciousness and thoughts as in our brain. You're right. It's so fascinating how being able to name the parts of the brain, like the parts of your car engine or whatever, somehow Mm -hmm. removes that sense of there's something wrong with you for feeling that. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, well, my liver is doing this thing and my amygdala is doing this other thing. Right. Right. Absolutely. There's a kind of a lack of judgment in that. But the liver is so much more clear in its function. There's no proof that the (laughs) liver does anything. (laughs) See, there's my uh, (laughs) assumption from the Western medical informed field. But with emotions, right? You know, we really, really know very little about what's happening in the brain. There's a lot of hypothesis and idea and a lot of meaningful research on what might be going on as we're emoting. Mm -hmm. But really the seat of what's happening and its true origin is invisible as thoughts. So tell me more about that as a kind of neuroscience-informed lay weirdo, you know, say, well, come on, aren't we talking about the hypothalamus and the amygdala and that's where emotions are coming from? Or is that completely just like newspaper science article bullshit? Well, I think it depends on to what purpose. Yeah. Right. So if you want to build and develop some neuro architecture of emotion, it can be useful to look at those areas and, mm-hmm. and, and identify what is being lit up when specific stimuli are being shown. If you want to help people, yeah. I'm not sure it's that useful. So this is your passion, right? <laughs> yeah. So what is useful in helping people? You know, I'm really, again, I'm a, I'm a passionate believer in this first-person introspection. Mm-hmm. I think we've discarded it for our shiny, fancy machines. Our shiny and fancy machines are wonderful. And it is really great to know the neuroarchitecture of emotion. Mm-hmm. At the cost, however, of saying, oh, but it was just what someone said. It doesn't really matter. So because we all, in some ways, pray to the Church of Science, we consider science really meaningful and and worthwhile as a way to know what's happening, we discard anything that science doesn't value. And science does not value first-person reports. Yeah, and until even relatively recently, behaviorism was the name of the game. Yes. And in which there might not even be internal experiences of emotion. And then we've got good old Chomsky and cognitive psychology where it's all mental. It's all the cognitive material, right? Yeah. So what do you see happening in beginning to reclaim the embodied aspect of emotion? Yeah, well, 
it's really exciting to see how much interest is being put into the body these days. So I see a lot more research on interoception and even things like investigating the microbiome, understanding how other bodily functions actually shift and change our feelings or emotions. By microbiome, you mean like the bugs in our guts Mm -hmm. and the way that those might change how we feel about things. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that headline, eat yogurt, make you happy? (laughs) So, you know, maybe a bit overstated, but this idea that our... our, Have have you been eating a lot of yogurt lately? (laughs) I haven't, actually. I should try. Coconut bliss has really been where it's at for me. Uh, Yeah, but this idea that, you know, our brain generates emotions that we then feel in our body versus there's a gut experience that mm. might generate emotions that we feel in our whole body. Yeah, It's exciting. It just helps us question a paradigm that is simply one way. And we look at a lot of the research in the vagus nerve, and there's a good deal also, of course, not only of turf war, but controversy there, but this idea that there's this kind of central channel that looks a whole lot like a central channel in Eastern medicine as well that connects our gut, our heart, our eyes, our ears in this fundamental way of processing the world. It's hilarious to hear you say that. I mean, I have the giant library of Indian, you know, books about spirituality from a zillion years ago. And there's one of them, I think it's called Devatma Shakti, And it's a big book about Kundalini. And in there, there's a huge diagram of the vagus nerve and all the glands attached. And, you know, this is the whole explanation in that book of, you know, the chakra system. So to hear you say that, I'm like, oh, there we go. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, integrative medicine. So I was at the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine at UCSF for a number of years. And it's so hard to do research in these kind of specific modalities that look at our chakras or meridian systems because they're so unique and specific to individuals. And science requires big averaging of as many people as possible. Well, something else comes up here for me, which Mm. is, I think, crucial. And that is, if you look in the history of tantrism, the chakra systems are visualization techniques and like kind of almost like a memory palace Mm. kind of idea Mm. where you're building this system in your mind of what's going on and feeling it in your body. Mm. But they are individual, Mm. like different teachers created them as a way to work with their psycho-spiritual somatic material. Mm. But they were all different. Mm. And so there was, like you're saying, so individual, there's many chakra systems in the sense of ways that we could almost like categorize our embodied and and mental experience. And so it was only much later that anyone started to think that this was somehow like an actual physical system Hmm. that you could go in there and like find with forceps or something. Hmm. And so to me, it's really interesting, at least historically, it doesn't seem to be how the chakra system was understood at all. Hmm. To me, that makes the idea of a chakra system much more fungible with Hmm. research, like something you could go in there and work with because it's kind of a, just a way of understanding yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And this is by no means my area of expertise. I'm just guilty by association with all these wonderful acupuncture and yoga researchers over at Osher. And what I know from them and some of their struggles is, 
If you have a pill that reduces, you know, blood pressure, it does so for 85% of the population. However, if you want to reduce blood pressure through acupuncture, through specific needles, it might be different person to person. You bet. So that makes it really tough to then measure what is the protocol that we can with this much confidence state, yes, this helps people. That's a big limitation of all the research in integrative medicine that they are finding incredibly clever ways to overcome, but it's slow going. Well, and I think that allopathic medicine is arriving at the same place when we're getting into genetics-based medicine, Mm -hmm. right? What's the proper term for that? Not precision medicine. But we use DNA Mm -hmm. testing to figure out the right chemical to give you. Yeah. You know where I really see (laughs) Western medicine failing and looking for solutions in the best way possible is this epidemic of stress and burnout, right? That's what's in some ways been... The rise of mindfulness and in some ways yoga is because of the just profound, untreatable suffering (laughs) among so-called normal, worried people. Yeah, it does seem that we've constructed the most effective possible dystopia, (laughs) you know, and we're we're learning to build ever better ones Mm -hmm. besides the obvious ecocide and, you know, the Mm. world is on fire and... (laughs) you know, every kind of collapse seems imminent. It's just there moment by moment in Mm. everyone's body and everyone's psychology and so many people suffering, right? Even we privileged white Western people with educations and money and stuff are brutally suffering. Yeah. And it's funny, it brings me back in a way to even that thing you said at the beginning, that was kind of like the initial insight of the punk rock world yeah like, hey this doesn't work this sucks this sucks yeah mm-hmm. and so what do you see that we can do personally for our own stress and suffering that comes about because of our environment yeah it's interesting you know of course i'm a big proponent of meditation i think it's great what <laughs> it's worthwhile uh, and i also teach a lot of people who are completely not interested in meditation as a value system as an mm. idea they think it's not cool or trendy but just soft and weird and specifically i'm talking about healthcare sure. <laughs> yeah and so in that context i'm really forced to offer people exactly what they can use without any hope or expectation that they're going to believe something. And those simple techniques really require kind of two core pieces. You need to give someone a good lens, a good microscope to identify and notice their experience. And whether that's at the, you know, nano experience (laughs) to nano experience of felt sensation, or starting to identify the scripts of their emotion behavior, Right. When is it that I get angry and with whom? And then how do I act? You also have to then give them some way to comfort themselves after they have that awareness. It is quite challenging to recognize and see your habits and behaviors and no longer blame someone else for them. I blame my cat. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the blame, of course, you know, there's a group of residents who I've been working with and they're struggling profoundly with cynicism. 
Yeah. And cynicism is it's such an interesting and unique phenomena. It's one in which people come together often in order to discharge negative emotions on one another. And it kind of works. It works. You feel bonded and connected, and it's a temporary solution to feeling emotionally overwhelmed. But it doesn't give you any lasting peace of mind. And quite the opposite. You're kind of just simmering and boiling over with this frustration and blame that you'd like to continue to let someone else know how deserving they are of, right? And it's fascinating how it does seem to help, but (laughs) it also inoculates you from any real help. Yeah. Because anything that comes in and would seem to be useful in any way is just bullshit. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Cynicism is, it's pretty intense. And so I worked at, you know, the trauma center here at SF General in the ER for six years. And so when I got interested in burnout, mostly because everyone wasn't burnt out. So if burnout is just things are incredibly hard and there's lots of suffering, everyone should have burnt out. The ER is just a wildly difficult, challenging place full of suffering. And yet, majority of people had so much integrity, so much joy, so much compassion. So what did you learn from them? How were they doing that? Yeah, you know, I think, and this is interesting, we've been kind of hinting at the edges of this, but it's really this temporality. They Mm -hmm. aren't thinking about tomorrow or the next day or the rest of their lives. They are really focused on that moment and they are present with it. Yeah. And when I remember, you know, something about the ER and I was working there when I was just starting to understand meditation. So that wasn't informing my point of view. But I remember going through a whole shift, sometimes eight to 10 hours and realizing, God, I haven't looked in the mirror once. Wow. I haven't noticed that I am Eve. I am just this person who's here to be of service. So I was doing my little bodhisattva way without knowing it was a bodhisattva way quite yet of being completely of service to others. And that I think is true for a lot of folks there, but that can also lead to burnout through empathic distress. Mm -hmm. So I think what those folks had was a really strong internal structure, but not one that was about them per se. I wish I could tell you more about what that meant. I didn't do a study while I was there. (laughs) I only studied it after. So that simple idea of staying in the moment, because the ER is so, by definition, an emergency and life-threatening and must be handled in the moment, and it's very, very high stakes, but also really takes a lot of focus because it's complicated. Mm -hmm. So they're just staying right on the edge of now all the time. Right. Yeah. And of course, you know, you had another... ER person on your podcast here, Daniel Ingram, and he didn't talk much the, about the his ER ex- hut. Yes. Yeah, I get it. I wish he'd been at my ER. But what you do see, of course, is so much death and so much unpredictable suffering. Mm. And so there's not only are you in that moment and super there, which you also are if you're working in a busy bar, right? Yeah. There's also this really palpable sense of, wow. I'm so lucky. Yeah, life and death right Mm -hmm. here all the time. Yeah, and it's not for a reason. Mm. Like That just gets ripped away from you, right? It's just the senseless nature of suffering. Stuff just happens Mm -hmm. to people. Yeah. Yeah. Saber-toothed tigers, all that. Yeah, and you know, we are, again, if we come back to blame cities and society for all of our ills, which I'm happy to keep doing. Don't forget corporations. And corporations. They prevent us from seeing those natural cycles of life and death. Mm. Right. So we're removed from them in this way that makes us feel as though 
if they happen to us, it's like an affront. Like, no, wait, this doesn't happen to me. Like, I remember one of the times I was working Thanksgiving or Christmas and someone saying after a huge car accident, you know, they were there, you know, other family members were there and luckily no one was fatally injured, but they were saying to me, but it's Christmas. Right. Wait, I can't get in a car accident. <laughs> it's Christmas. It's a really inconvenient time to get you know, you know, in a car wreck. This is a fun time, yeah. right? And so I think, again, if we talk about what's so good about moment to moment mm. is we are liberated from those expectations. So if we rewind all the way back to His Holiness the Dalai Lama's advice to me in 19, or sorry, 2000, not 1995, in 2000 of you know, bring this person who you idealize back into the recognition that they have their faults. What he's doing is preventing me from projecting them and having this kind of false idea and representation. I'm see them in the moment, see them as they are. So I think that interpretation, instead of see their faults, is a little bit more resonant to me. Mm-hmm. And one that's been really sitting with me in my heartbreak of this person who I love. He's a wonderful being, right? We were stuck. Things were not working. Clearly stupid. <laughs> I'm not there. I'm not, I'm, I don't go to anger quickly, if ever. Um, but, you know, it's this idea that I see the temptation of building him up to be this ideal, especially mm. now that he's gone. Sure. Like, wow, he's yeah. even, he's better than ever. Right. Instead of this moment to moment experience of how this person actually is. How do you think that applies to ourselves? <laughs> wow. I mean, it's everything, right? I have a feeling you have a very good answer to this, but I know for a fact that this idea of who I am in partnership has so little to do with who I am moment to moment. And yet it seems to define my feeling of kind of suffering right now. Yeah, especially because the partnership you're describing is gone. Yeah. Right? So there is no moment by moment. Right. Yeah. There's just a being with, yielding to this sorrow. And yet the sorrow's fine. I actually, Mm -hmm. I I really like being sad. That's why the emo scene was so good for me, Gilman. (laughs) It's the fear that is my kind of a place where I don't yield. And it's a fear of now being this altered other status than I want to be. Yeah. And so it comes back to seeing an image of yourself. Right. Right. That may or may not be not just not true, but even anything at all. Right. right? Yeah. And do you find that self-image, as I'm describing it, like coming up as a like an actual concept or archetype in your head, Mm. right? Like you see who the Eve you wanted to be Mm. or how does that work? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, personally for me, this may not be for everyone. It's more my projected idea of how I'll be seen by others. Mm. So this, you know, Eve in a good relationship, I recognize the reality that that doesn't exist right now. (laughs) And yet the fear is more, what will others think? which is so ridiculous. And I would hope that after years on this planet and practice wouldn't matter. And I can see it. And yet it still has some residue for me, has some stickiness. Well, as we're talking about the whole basis of evolution is Mm. that group thing, right? Right. And imagine the shared emotions of everyone around us is, or not imagining, but co-experiencing the emotions of everyone around us is kind of home base for human beings. Right. So 
it's rich. Yes. It's rich in that spot. Yeah, our survival depends on others liking us. Yes. And if that's likes on Facebook or actually being included on the tribe, we don't know the difference mm. experientially, right? It's life-threatening to be disincluded or right. can feel that way. Right. So, Eve, I described kind of my way of working with the moment-by-moment arising of emotion, but how do you work with that, or how do you teach people to work with that? Yeah, I really feel super fortunate to be living in this time of technology that's so accessible, that people carry around with them this hugely powered computer in their pocket. And as researchers, we have this huge advantage where we can rely on people to be citizen scientists. So they can collect meaningful data and give it to us. And they can collect meaningful data and they're empowered to see it on their own. So this to me is a really inspiring piece of where we are in contemporary research. There's a form of research that's called either ecological momentary assessment or sometimes called ambulatory assessment. And essentially it is checking into your phone now and then and describing what's happening for you. So with the famous experiment by Daniel Ariely about uh, everyone being distracted and unhappy be an <laughs> example of that. <laughs> right, yes. And Matt Killingsworth, like yeah. the happy, mm-hmm, the daily happiness study. So in that study, people had an iPhone app that randomly triggered them at various points during the day to see what they were doing and how distracted they were and how they felt. Mm -hmm. So this is one of those. Yeah. And I did a study during my postdoc at UCSF in which I really wanted to figure out and dig a little deeper underneath burnout. So I was describing my experience with burnout in the ER. And admittedly, I didn't give anyone surveys while I was there. I should have even though I hadn't done my doctorate yet and had no business doing, I, I would love to have that data now. I can't believe you didn't get I the know, survey. I really should have. But now, you know, in my role as a postdoc, I was able to give as many surveys as I wanted. And I gave a lot of surveys to residents who were working in the ER and pediatrics and internal medicine and family community medicine. And every time I gave a survey, the results I got back were extreme levels of burnout. Just profound burnout. What does that look like? So what it looks like on a score is, you know, burnout's kind of dynamic. Burnout has these three subscales, emotional exhaustion. It's a lot like what it sounds, but another term affiliated with it is emotion labor. So we think of people in caregiving professions, it's not as though they're straining their backs for lifting something very heavy. They're straining their emotions through the everyday expectation of interactions and engagement All of us experience emotion labor. It's actually not the worst thing unless it becomes so strong that we don't have enough internal resources to recover. Yeah. So with emotional exhaustion, when it gets over a certain threshold and we don't have any time to recuperate, it feels just depleting. When someone reports emotional exhaustion, what does it sound like? So it's, I feel used up at the Mm. end of the day. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't connect to what's happening for my patients. And it's a real sense of kind of resonating underneath the emotions of others as well. Mm -hmm. And that's distinct from the other two scales. The other one is lack of efficacy. I don't feel like what I do makes a difference. So it's just hopeless, Sisyphusian 
Mm-hmm. Labor without meaning. Right. And often it's actually asked in the reverse. So I feel like what I do makes a difference. It matters that I'm here. This the, work the, is they important. They circle the zero. Or right. Yeah. And they circle the zero. <laughs> and then there's cynicism, which we spoke about a bit. And this sense of kind of callous depersonalization. I don't even care what's happening here. It doesn't even matter. Do you think that one is another way of describing emotional exhaustion? You know, with exhaustion, you can still be in the game, mm. right? Like, I'm exhausted, but I love my work. I care. It matters so much to me. Cynicism's like, I don't even care. Right. Physiologically, there hasn't been much research, but my guess, and a researcher who I really respect, Wendy Barry Mendez, who studies emotion physiology, we both have this kind of hypothesis or idea that that depersonalization might be what's called sub-stimulation. So with exhaustion, you think of yourself as overwhelmed. If you have a little needle on the dial, it's all the way in the red. There's so much feeling. And with depersonalization, it's almost lack of feeling. You're numb, detached. And how are you relating depersonalization to cynicism? They're considered synonymous in that scale. Really? Yeah. And depersonalization has a very distinct meaning in clinical psychology. Mm -hmm. For this, which is more organizational psychology, it's I don't care I don't matter, nothing matters. Right. Kind of, again, callousness is another mm-hmm. way to describe. So if somebody's really burnt out, then they're going to be emotionally overworked. Mm-hmm. They're going to be cynical. Mm-hmm. And they're going to feel like nothing they do matters. That's a possibility. But interestingly, with the residents who I have surveyed at UCSF, they are profoundly exhausted They're pretty depersonalized, and yet they still have a sense of purpose in their work. Mm. Otherwise, they wouldn't show up, right? right? So I sometimes call them the most functional group of depressed people I've ever worked with. (laughs) Though that title can be, you know, given anywhere else at any time. I'm open to new contenders. I'm sure there's a lot of depressed functional people out there. And so with this group, I was interested because my experience of them, teaching them and working with them through emotions and practicing meditation is they had a lot more going on than just burnout. Yeah, They were more than just that label and title. And in the field of medicine right now, it's a crisis. It's an epidemic. And there's a lot of concern, rightly so, and yet not a lot of specificity. So there's these kind of general buckets of, well, it's institutional. You know, the systems are set up in a way where people don't have enough time with their patients. There's too much paperwork. So that's why they're burnt out. Or it's personal. You know, some people just can't handle this stress. They have things going on at home or they don't have internal resources and it's them. They're not sleeping enough. They're not sleeping enough. You know, so there are these kind of like individual and, and systemic reasons. And, and those are real. Those are true. But it doesn't really get you to the level of, okay, day to day, what's going on? What does burnout look like? What does burnout feel like? What is catalyzing burnout? So I did a study that was EMA in which I asked folks twice a day for two weeks, what emotion are you feeling right now? What does EMA mean? Uh, Ecological momentary assessment. Okay. Yeah. Um, I like my psychological terms here, ecological momentary (laughs) assessment. And so we have, you know, what are you feeling right now? So you know, your listeners at home, I can say, pretend right now you are getting pinged in the last hour. Think of the emotion episode that is kind of most relevant. So that would be your prompt. What emotion was it? What triggered it? Where did you feel it in your body? 
what did you do as a result? And how long did it last? Hmm. So I asked them this for two weeks, ended up getting 100 people over the course of three studies. And what I found was the burnout, again, profound and significant. And yet 50% of all of the emotion episodes were enjoyment and contentment. Wow. And that wasn't at a low level. That wasn't at a neutral level. That was a significant amount of feeling okay. Yeah. And that was surprising not only to me, but to the residents. And I did follow-up interviews and some kind of manipulation checks of, were you only reporting when things were okay? And they were like, absolutely not. Why would we just choose the good times? Or so I didn't even know they were there. So they were actually caught off guard, mm. right? And They the, were surprised by their own richness of good times. Yeah, some of the findings in our study through the qualitative research is, I'm surprised I'm okay so much. And then we found, of course, a significant amount of frustration and anger and fear. But what was triggering the episodes of fear was highly related to work. Mm. So feelings of being judged or evaluated, worry they're not a good enough doctor, concern that they won't be able to finish their paperwork in time and be reprimanded. Eve keeps evaluating their emotions. (laughs) Yes, under high scrutiny. (laughs) And then with anger, right? So that was about... 15% of all the emotions experienced across everyone for all these two weeks. And then another 15 to 17% was more on the range of anger, frustration. And surprisingly, a big proportion of that was triggered by interactions with people at home. So my boyfriend didn't care when I made him dinner, or Mm -hmm. my dad just doesn't understand while I'm still single, or cat not eating the food I got them and it's, you know, locally sourced raw food. You know, they're so ungrateful. You know, and so it was surprising and and really helpful, right? Because if we're designing interventions and trying to train people for how to work with and deal with emotions, it's important to know what emotions. So there's this kind of interesting backlash right now that I encounter in healthcare where the residents especially feel that a new emphasis on well-being, which is being expected of them from the highest level. So the Academy of Graduate Medical Education nationally has a requirement that all residency programs now teach well-being as of 16 months ago. And for the residents, they're like, you want me to do another thing on my own time to make myself better for you? (laughs) And so there's not a lot of specificity on what is it that these residents need? Is it a glass of wine? Is it food delivery. So they have, you know, nutritious meals. Stanford has tried a program like that. Is it feeling of connection and social support? And one of the interesting things I found is a lot of those enjoyable episodes didn't involve anybody else. You've measured this burnout in all these interesting ways. Like what's the actionable content there? Yeah. You know, for me, it's how do we design these programs that really target the needs of these residents. Mm. And though I studied a significant number of people at UCSF, I wouldn't even try to say that it's the same at Duke or the same at Harvard or the same at any medical institution. One facet of research I think is luckily being disassembled is this idea that we can generalize, especially Mm. when it comes to psychological issues or even public health matters. There's a wonderful now emeritus professor at Berkeley named Leonard Syme. He has the incredible title of the godfather of social epidemiology. (laughs) It's good. So he's the one who discovered that 
there are social factors that relate to health and well-being. Mm. And he was one of the first proponents of creating large-scale public health programs that can reduce inequality and make people feel empowered. And he has been one of the most ardent critics of anything generalizable. He says it needs to be block by block. So interesting how we come back to the individuality and individual medicine, right? Yeah. So residents are kind of an exceptional group. And I wanted to study this exceptional group because there's so much attention and interest, right? And yet what residents are experiencing might be different from the rest of us is a more profound lack of sleep. Yeah, it's more, they're in a very extreme situation. They're in an extreme situation. And yet when I have taught in other settings, including schools, jails, Dharma centers, corporations, it's not as though these issues are any different. There's still a great deal of emphasis on how are we working with the daily stress. And my guess is there may be slightly less levels of burnout, depending on where people are working. And understanding and investigating more, what are the sources of daily emotion, instead of just burnout, I feel really passionate about. I wish that emotion and really deep emotion inquiry became part of a diagnostic tool to understand what is it that's going on? What is the source of this stress? Let's not just call it some sort of block entity or definition. Let's really get into understanding it. And the very process of paying attention to what our emotions are is an intervention in and of itself. Mm. So people often, when I tell them, yeah, I teach emotion awareness, they're like, okay, I'm aware. Now what? Yeah. Hey, I know what I'm feeling. So what? And, I know I'm freaked out. Right? Who cares? Yeah. And, you know, I think it's interesting. And we haven't spoken to this. We have an implicit assumption that that awareness, that fine-grained awareness is enough. And why is it enough? Mostly because we actually have pretty good rational capacities. Mm. If we can slow down enough to see this habit, this pattern, naturally, we're going to want to improve. We're going to want to diminish the sources of our kind of craving and delusion and hostility. Do you think it's just that we're bringing online the, you know, medial prefrontal cortex and that is exerting some kind of control or containment function? Or is there more to it than that? Yeah, such a good provocative question. There is more to it. And part of that is connecting deeply to our intention. And again, you don't have to hold a Buddhist worldview to set a clear intention. And you had a guest recently who really beautifully spoke on bringing virtue into everyday life. Chuladasa was speaking about just recognizing when I do this specific activity, I end up feeling bad. But when I do this other specific activity, I feel better. And that just simple, rational evaluation of there's a general sense of care, which I have for myself. I want to be happy. I want to feel good in the world. So our virtue doesn't have to be a very kind of high level, pious experience. It can be just a simple recognition that I want to feel good. And, and there are specific things that I can do that reliably feel good. Right. Yeah. And that ruminating in my negative emotions rarely feels good. Whereas coconut bliss. Coconut bliss. So good. Yeah. And temporary, but then it's over. Yeah. yeah. Now, what about surfing? <sighs> surfing is such a great teacher. A, because I started later in my life. I How thought, old were you? 
thirty. Wow. Yeah. It's late to come to the surfing party. It is. Wow. It is. I was forced. Again, just thrown in the deep end because I was living in Indonesia with my partner at the time and there was nothing else to do. <laughs> and I got immediately hooked, as yeah. people do. Yeah. I just unfortunately thought surfing was all for macho bros growing up. And were you a skate kid? Mm, I did a little skating. So you had a little bit of the thing already. Yeah, yeah. I've been a swimmer, so that was already in my favor. And surfing's great because people always assume like, oh, wow, that's so wonderful. What a meditative practice. Mm -hmm. And yet there you go out in the waves and someone's in your wave. Yeah. Right? Or the conditions just aren't good and you just get completely kind of thrown uh, head over tail over head over tail and pulled under and there's sand in your ears and you don't even know which way is up and luckily you know where your board is it's not just peaceful bliss yeah it's not just conquering waves right when no. you're all the way on top of them there's, yeah i find uh, paddling out to be particularly annoying sometimes yes it's like this is just not working and i'm getting swamped or right whatever. but that's just like meditation you know sometimes when I go out surfing, one of my good surf buddies, I feel like he is my surf guru, actually. He has such a good attitude. And it's not blissed out California attitude. It's more like, this is all paddle practice. Mm -hmm. That's what we're here for. If you catch a wave, nice. We're just out here to get in the ocean and practice paddling. So get over it. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Now you have a new program of meditation instruction mm -hmm. that you are, I think, debuting this year, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. So what is that? Yeah, so Cultivating Emotional Balance is newly being offered in North America. But and actually, that's the name of the program? Mm -hmm. Cultivating Emotional Balance is a meditation program that really heavily focuses on emotion and working with emotion as a means to have a genuinely happy and fulfilling life. And when I say genuinely happy, meaning a kind of happiness that we cultivate from the inside. And what's the format? So the format is a 42-hour program, so it's quite long. Mm -hmm. Often we'll teach it over the course of eight weeks with a couple Saturdays or as a retreat. And we've been teaching it, Alan Wallace and myself, as a teacher training for the last eight years abroad, never in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And this year is the first time we're offering it in the U.S. And now I'm teaching with Ryan Redman, who's a teacher out of Sun Valley, Idaho. And we are doing the teacher training in a partially remote, partially live fashion, as is the way these days with teacher trainings. And it makes sense. You get to integrate the learning into your everyday life. With Alan, we teach it as five-week intensive, which is totally awesome and hugely inaccessible to the majority of people. <laughs> they have a great time, and then they leave, and it's hard for them to follow up on the learnings. Yeah. So I feel really excited about this new way of offering it. And you know, funnily enough, it was one of the first programs incorporating meditation and psychology in 2000 when it was coming out of this mind and life meeting on destructive emotions. And we've been just hanging low and grassroots while all these other programs have come up around us and had great success. And so we are still taking our slow and steady way, really believe in the content of the program. And given its length and depth, we can't really do it in a light format. So I would say that this program is really for someone who wants to invest in transformation. What are you teaching people? We're teaching people kind of two main principles. One is let's work 
at the nitty gritty level with your day to day emotions. Mm -hmm. So if you were frustrated yesterday, what was in your database about that frustration? What made you feel so irritated at your roommate for eating your food, for example? Mm -hmm. How did you then experience that in your body? What was your response and how do you work around it? So we again have that more fine grained or microscopic level. And on the other hand, we're looking at and working with practices around mental balance. So what are the kind of cognitive, attentional, intentional, and emotional aspects of our life overall? And how are those balanced? Do we have too much hyperactive attention or some kind of deficit in certain areas? So we take an approach that's a bit more broad and encompassing and philosophical from the contemplative point of view and include basic practices that are drawn from Tibetan Buddhism, but we teach them in a secular format of shamatha, vipassana, and the heart practices. Mm. And combined with this emotion work, it's for us, you know, teaching it, it's such a joy because people really get a sense of not just the neck up enlightenment, Mm. right? But the down on the ground embodied experience of when I come home and the dishes aren't done again. Yeah. Yeah how do I respond? Right? <laughs> so I really, I love that. And I, and I teach little parts of it in small workshops and have taught it quite literally all over the world, Singapore and Brazil and in the US and in Europe, and find that this universal language of emotions gives people so much intrigue and so much laughter and looking at it together in a group format. It's awesome. Excellent. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Eve. Great to be here. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. 
There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there. So if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>